was he was sharing with a group of us that uh, we're talking about the generosity of God this morning. And I'm here in Pullman, Washington, and I am speaking to you. Somebody could be listening to this recording next week, next month, next year, who knows when. They could be listening to it on their iPod while they're running, which I don't know why you would ever run, but they could be listening to it then. They could be listening to it in their home, and God is going to speak to us here, and God is going to speak to them or you there. And it's so cool how God works that way, right? It doesn't matter. Time and space and all that stuff. And God can use technology to speak to us. So wonderful. So, um, to everybody online, welcome. And to you guys here, welcome too. Um, never done that before. That was weird, wasn't it? Audrey, was that weird? You're kind of looking at me sideways. Goes, yeah, that was weird. No. All right, so that was weird. Uh, this last week, I got, I got a chance to do something I never, ever get to do. I ran down to Lewiston all by myself. In, a, in my car, I went to Lewiston all by myself. I had a meeting. I'd had a reason to be there. Somebody's like, why would you go to Lewiston? Um, it's a good question. I went down there for a meeting, and I did something that I never, ever get to do. I went to Costco all by myself. Sounds dangerous, right? Why? Well, why? I had a good reason. I had something I needed to find there. But while I was there, I did something again. So it's like, it was like a day of first. So I went to Costco all by myself, and then I got to do something I don't ever usually get to do. When I got to the Costco parking lot, I drove around for five minutes looking for the best spot. Serious. I did. I drove around like five, ten minutes looking for the best possible spot. If I do that with my family in the car, I get like one pass of one row, and then there's this chorus of, just park already! You know? You ever, didn't you like that? How many of you are parking trollers? Raise your hands. Parking trollers. You'll drive around for 10 or 15 minutes looking for the best spot. You guys know. We don't want to walk far, right? How many of you guys are like the just park already people, right? How many of you irritated me right now for being a parking troller? Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. So I, I'm a parking troller. I was once with somebody who was a parking troller with a twist. This person will remain anonymous, but I was riding in the car with her. We were at a large mall with a very, very full parking lot, and we're trolling, looking for a spot, you know, happily trolling together, looking for the best possible spot. But she, all of a sudden, starts praying. And she's like, Jesus, help us find the best parking spot possible. Lord, just open up the right parking spot for us right this minute. And I'm like... Oh, come on. The things I'm praying about right now are like, I'm like cosmic circumstances, right? I'm praying for lost friends. I'm praying for healing. And you're praying for a parking spot. And I'm like, I'm like getting all judgy inside about this whole parking spot prayer thing. And then all of a sudden, we come around the corner, and guess what? The first parking spot next to the door was wide open. And she just pulls in and starts going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this parking spot. And I'm like, I wasn't sure what to think about that, you know? Like, is it coincidence? Did God answer her prayer? I don't know. It was crazy. But either way, I'm starting to think maybe I need to start praying for parking spots. Are you thinking that too? Last week, um, in the sermon group that I'm a part of, which we started last week to launch these sermon groups, and you want to get involved with one if you're not, they're great. Um, And mine's got space, so Wednesday nights at the Crossler's home, come join us. Uh, sign up in the back so we know you're coming. But we were sitting talking, we were talking about God as our Father and how good He is. And we came up with this phrase, it kind of happened communally. We're like, God's got this. You know, we don't have to worry about where we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. We're reading the scripture and God's got this thing. God's got this. And I love that phrase and I love to apply it to big things like, you know, people going to the emergency room or having cancer or the finances or whatever it happens to be. We we'll, we'll want to apply it to that. But, but what about the small things? You know, things small like parking spots. 
God's got this. Why is it that we don't often bring our small, immediate needs to Jesus? Why is it that we don't take the small things of our life? Now, parking spots may seem trivial, and they may be, but there are lots of little things in our lives where we think, oh, God's too busy for it, for this. You know, he's got bigger things. He's literally holding the universe together. So I'm thinking this little need is probably just, it, we don't want to bother God with it. We don't want to bother God with that. Why do we do that? I have a suspicion in my heart that it's because deep down inside, many of us believe that God is stingy. That God is, is too busy with the big things of the world to deal with the little things of our world. That God is uncaring about the small things of our life. And that he's stingy and he's withdrawn and he's aloof, which is a word that was prayed this morning. Thank you for that great word. We believe that God is small and that he's reluctant to give. But that's not the God that Jesus knew. And that's what this sermon series is all about. Looking at the God who Jesus knew. The God I wish you knew. The God that Jesus knows and loves. The God that I am learning to know and to love. And I want to introduce you to him. The God who is generous. See, our big idea today is this. is The God I wish you knew is scandalously generous. Scandalously generous. And get this. You can never, ever outgive God. I dare you to try. You can never outgive God. I hope that when you leave here today, you're going to leave with a new boldness to pray big prayers, to give big grace, and to dare big things for Jesus. There's going to be three stories we're looking at today, and two of them are found in the book of Matthew, and one is found in the book of Luke. So if you want to turn to Matthew 20, we're going to read the first one here in just a second. This one, I'd like to rename for you. You know how the Bible gives us these little headings? If I get to Matthew 20. My book, my Bible, my book, my Bible says, Laborers in the Vineyard. It's not a very exciting title. I want to call this The Generous Boss. Okay, The Generous Boss. I'm going to read this to you. We're going to read all three of these stories, and some of them are a little longer than others. So stay with me. You want to follow along on the screen or read on your Bible in your hand. These are stories, I mean, imagine Jesus telling these to people. Okay, so here's the first one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, it was an amount of money, he sent them out into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, go out to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went out. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand there idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, Go out into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to this foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, so these are the guys at the end of the day, when they came, he gave to them each a denarius, a day's wages. When those hired first came, they thought they were going to receive more because each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving, let's see, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm, not, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us from this word about the generosity of God this morning. And that our hearts would reflect your generous heart. As we study, God, we pray that our ears would be open to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know what it's like to work for a landowner, because I was a tree worker for a number of years. I remember one specific job where we, we uh, walked up to the job, and it, it's like in the morning we get in the truck, and we're like, what are we doing today? He's like, hey, we just got three trees to take down. No big deal. Three trees. Three big, fat, 120-foot white pine trees. Now, if you don't know what a white pine is, it's just a normal old pine tree with nice fuzzy branches, and they're really beautiful to look at. But when it gets hot, these things start drawing hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water out of the ground. I don't know where it comes from. The ground could be as dry as could be, but if you, like, like you can almost hear it surging in this tree. And so we had to take these three trees down. It was one of the hottest days of the year. It was hitting 95 degrees on the west side, so it was super, super humid, super hot, and these trees are pumping up so much water. As soon as you touched anything with a chainsaw on that tree, they were, like, literally spraying sap out of them. So within an hour, basically, every member of our crew was tarred and feathered. Right? We're just covered with sap and the sawdust and the dirt and there's tree branches sticking in our hair and we're just like, all the ropes are sticky, the chainsaws are sticky, everything is just sticky, sticky, sticky mess. It was horrible. It took us more than a day to, to take care of it. And literally, when we were chopping down the tree, he would, he would cut through a, a piece of that big round and it was spraying sap all over us. It was horrible. I imagine that's kind of what it was like for these laborers. Working in the scorching heat of the day, they're filthy. They're hot, and they're tired. So now this day was going on, and I, and I could just imagine my boss saying, man, we are not going to finish this job today. There's no way this is going to happen. We need more workers. So he runs down to Home Depot to see if he can find some day laborers, right? So he goes down to Home Depot, and he grabs some guys and brings them out, and they're helping us, and we're like, yay, some more muscle. We don't have to work so hard, you know? And they're dragging the brush, and they're carrying stuff, and they're getting all sappy. That happens at about noon. And then about 3 o'clock, he's like, we're still not going to make this. We've only got about two hours left. So he goes and he gets more. And we got all these guys working. And then at the end of the day, he's, we've still, we're short. It's like five o'clock and we need to be done right now. He's like, if I go, I get another guy to come work with us for an hour. We can get this thing done. So he goes and he gets somebody else and brings him back. And we all work. We're all done. We're all sticky. We're all covered in sap. And now my boss is going to get out his paycheck and pay everybody, especially the day laborers. Now imagine what it would feel like if he pulled out his check and he calls the guy that had only been there for one hour. I mean, he barely got his hands dirty. He certainly didn't get sweaty like we were. We're looking all bedraggled. He's still looking fresh and clean. And he writes a check for the same amount that I would make in a day and hands it to him. And then he goes to the guys that came two hours before the end of the day and writes a check for the same amount and hands it to him. And then the guys who came at noon, he writes a check, hands it to him. Now I'm thinking, oh, not only is this guy my boss, but he's my friend, Right? He's my good friend, and he's, he's, he, he cares about me. He cares about my family. He's generous, and he is going to give me so much more because this job stunk. It was like the lousiest job we'd ever done. So he's going to give me this big old fat paycheck at the end of this day, and he turns and he writes a check for exactly one day's wages. Can you guys put yourself in those shoes? Ivan can. <laughs> Ivan's like, I've been in those shoes. It would stink. It'd be horrible. I would protest too. So these guys that are getting paid the same wages all day long, the last guys that started in the vineyard early in the day, they're upset. They're feeling like, hey, that's unfair. And at first glance at this story, 
It seems to be completely unfair. But in reality, and the landowner points this out, in, la- in reality, it's completely fair. Because the landowner pays exactly what he promised to pay. He promised to pay one day's wages, and that's exactly what they got. The reality is that nobody was treated unfairly. It's just that those who came last were treated generously. Scandalously so. So generous that it offends our sensibilities, especially for those of us who have been working in the heat of the day all day long. It is a scandal. Scandalous generosity. What's going on in this story? It actually follows the story we talked about at the beginning of this series, the story of the rich young ruler. He was a man who did, uh, had done all the right things. You know, he'd, he'd kept all the commandments, he'd given all the right offerings, he made all the right sacrifices, but in the end, he loved God's blessings, his stuff, more than he loved God. He loved his, his comfort and his wealth more than he loved Jesus. And when Jesus says to him, the only thing that's left for you to do is to give up everything and follow me, he couldn't do it. He had to walk away from Jesus. And Jesus responds to this man as he's walking away. He looks at his disciples and he says this to him, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's in Matthew 19, 23 through 24. It's just before this passage. At this point, the disciples are kind of freaking out, right? Because they're thinking, look... He's got all of God's blessings. All the blessings that there could be. Money, wealth, position, power. I mean, all of that is from God. All of these good things that God gave him. If a man who is loved by God so much to be blessed in this way can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who's going to make it? Who's going to get in? Who is it? And Jesus responds to them this way. He says this. And actually, Peter asked first. He's like, well, we've left everything. What will there be for us? And Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus responds to Peter by telling him, that he will be rewarded, but rewards in the kingdom of God don't look like the rewards here on earth. It's different. It's backwards. The first will be last. The last will be first. And that thought is repeated again here at the end of the passage of the generous landowner, the generous boss. The last will be first, and the first will be last. The righteous people of Jesus' days were really annoyed by Jesus' propensity to give away salvation to people who didn't seem to deserve it. He gave it to sinners. He opened it up to just about anybody who wanted to come along. Actually, and I say just about, really anybody. Anybody who wanted salvation could come to Jesus and receive it. And those religious leaders and rulers of the day were really annoyed by this because they thought they had to earn it. You've got to do it right. You've got to live the right way. You've got to live the right life. Things have got to look right. You've got to be good enough. You have to work 14 hours in the heat and in the sun and be tarred and feathered by the sap of the tree and the dirt of the earth in order to earn your paycheck. But here, Jesus is just giving it to anybody. He's giving it to the guy who showed up at 4.55 p.m. to work until 5. He's giving it to the guy who showed up at 5.10 to finish the job that should have been done 10 minutes ago, but he works 20 minutes and he gets the same reward. God's salvation, a place in his kingdom, is a gift, a generous gift of grace. Who is the landowner in Jesus' story? It's God. It's God. And what's the moral of the story? 
that God is generous and he gives more than we deserve. More than we deserve. And here's the reality. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. Nobody deserves it. No one is good enough. Now, I tried recently. I tried to be good enough. And guess what? It didn't work out. I'm not good enough. And I know many of you have tried and tried and tried and tried. And in the end, we find out it's just not good enough. Our very best efforts can't possibly earn the salvation that God offers us. In fact, if we were really given what we deserve, even the best of us, we would end up in H-E double hockey sticks, right? Because everybody likes to say the word hell. So we say H-E double hockey sticks. It's silly. It's a silly thing I do. I'm like, are you with me? You here? You here? Okay. Just making sure. Because the online people are here. I can sense them. I sense their presence. Anyway, nobody is good enough. And if we all got what we deserve, we would deserve hell. Because of all the things we've done in our lives that were wrong. All the things, the mistakes and failures that we can't change. All the times we've turned away from God and tried to make our own way. But God is scandalously generous with us. And he offers the gift of salvation to anyone, no matter how qualified you are, whether you worked for 15 years, for 5 years, or you just came to faith. At any point in your life, if you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, you receive the same reward that the rest of us receive who have served our whole lives. One of the complaints about the church in our culture is that we tell people that we're going to hell. Now, when I, when I even said, you know, if we got what we deserved, we'd all go to hell, some people kind of came up on edge because we don't like to hear that. It doesn't sit well with us. That, hey, well, I, I am good. I'm a good person. What do you mean God's going to send me to hell? When people ask me, so do you think God's going to send me to hell? My response to them is, is, is this. First of all, I think that God is infinitely more holy and infinitely more just than we can ever imagine. If God is going to be God, the God of the whole universe, he has to be. He has to see everything and understand perfectly what justice is and what just punishment is. God is infinitely more holy, more set apart, more other than me. He cannot be a human being. He cannot have my mindset. If God is God, he has to be infinitely more holy and infinitely more just than I am. However, if God is God, he also is infinitely more loving and infinitely more merciful than I would ever be. So, what do I do with that? My sins, my brokenness, my mistakes, my failures, they say you deserve judgment. But God's love and God's mercy says, I accept you and love you. Am I going to hell? That's up to God to decide. I don't have a choice in this. And I think that just like the religious leaders of the day, I think I'll be surprised at who God says, I forgive you. I think I'll be surprised at the people showing up at the party of the kingdom of heaven in the last days. I'll look around and I'll be like, you? Really? You got in? I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And then hopefully, God will have worked in me enough at that point that I'll be like, praise Jesus, you got in. I'm so glad that you're here with me. I got a sappy joke for you with bad theology. Ready? Sappy church joke with bad theology. A taxi driver and a pastor were standing in line to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the taxi driver was just in front, and as he approached the gates, uh, Peter is up there, and he says, Oh, it's you. Hey, do you see that giant mansion over the hilltop over there? See, this is bad theology. There is no mansion over the hilltop. It's not what heaven's like, but we're just going to pretend. So there's, see, you see the amazing mansion over there? That's yours. Head on over into your reward. Good job. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. So the, the guy behind him, the pastor, 
he's all excited, right? He's like, oh, if the taxi driver got the, that mansion, I can't wait to get what, it, what I'm going to get. And he's thinking all this, and as he walks up, Peter looks at him, and he says, oh, oh, hi, Pastor, how are you? And he's like, oh, I'm great, I'm really excited, it's my day to enter heaven. And he's like, yep, yep, you see that shack down there next to the mansion? And he's like, what? He goes, yeah, that's for you, head on over. The pastor gets really angry, and I would understand because I'm a pastor. And the pastor says to him, he's like, you're kidding me. I, I've preached sermons about Jesus for the last 40 years. I've led all kinds of people. I've done all these really amazing things. And Peter's like, yeah, I, I know, pastor. I know. But pastor, here's the thing. It seems that when you preach your sermons, people fell asleep. But when the taxi driver drove people around, they prayed. I'll let that sink in for a minute. They prayed. I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven. There will be people in heaven who have lived righteously all their lives. They've done all the right things. They've worked hard for the Lord. They've served Him. Uh, they've done all the things that we say, oh, this is what it takes to be a Christian. They, they live the right kind of life. And those people are going to be in heaven and praise Jesus. We're all going to be together worshiping Him. But I think that there's going to be people, and, I, and I'm counting on this, there's going to be people who get in at the last minute. I'm serious. There's going to be people who get in at the last minute, like my friend uh, Randy, who was a pastor that I worked with, and he struggled with addiction and alcohol his whole life. And in the end, his marriage crumbled, and things fell apart, and he's out in a park one day walking. I don't know where he was at with God. And he died suddenly. He died suddenly. I'm counting on God's grace for him. I'm counting on God's mercy toward him. Or my grandfather, who lived most of his life angry and bitter and full of hatred toward people, but who at the last minute on his deathbed turned his life over to Christ just before he died. I'm counting on God's generous, scandalous mercy and grace for them. And I'm counting on it for me, who regularly makes mistakes and failures, who walks through life doing my very best but blundering very often. Our response to God is, what? What are you laughing about? Okay. I don't know what was said, but people online heard you. It was good. Okay. Our response to God's crazy generosity ought to be to big, give big grace to other people. I use the word big because that's the best description I can find for it. Huge amounts of grace for people, especially for the people who are turning back to Jesus, just like Jesus gave grace to anyone who would come, anyone who would turn their life. We're like pouring grace on people, giving grace as God gives. The fact that we identify with the guys who worked all day and cried no fair at the end of the day kind of shows that we live just like the older son from last week's story. We live geographically close to the heart of God, but really we've not caught it yet. We've missed it. Wouldn't a better response to people who are turning to Jesus, even at the last minute of their lives, be to say, that's so cool. I'm so glad that God was generous with them, that, that God rescued them even at the very last second. It doesn't matter if they blew it their entire lives. It doesn't matter if they didn't serve. It doesn't matter if they didn't give. It doesn't matter if they didn't do any of those things. It doesn't matter if they were abusers and evil of all sorts. If they've turned their life to Jesus, our heart should be to say, that's so cool that God would rescue somebody so lost and give him the gift of grace. God is generous. So give big grace to others. Give big grace to each other. That's the God I wish you knew. The second story is this one. 
It's uh, out of Matthew 25. So just turn your Bible over a few pages. Um, it's called the Parable of the Talents, which, you know, sounds like America's got talent or something. Uh, I want to rename this one to the story of the three investment bankers. Um, Heidi and I worked for uh, this lady, this is years ago, we were kind of trying to make ends meet when I was a young pastor, and we got to, to work at this house cleaning this giant mansion. And uh, so we were cleaning this house, and we'd been there for a number of months, cleaning together different parts of the house and stuff. And one day, we're talking, Heidi is talking to the, this homeowner, and she's like, you know, I just got to know, what, what does your husband do for a living? Because the lady didn't do anything. She, like, literally organized people to clean her house and work in her yard and cook her food and all that kind of stuff. That was her job in the household, was to organize people to do everything. So she's like, what does your husband do? And he says to her, or she says to Heidi, he's a baker. And we're like, a baker? Wow, what kind of baker is this guy? I mean, what is he baking? A couple months later, we found out he's actually a banker. And um, so anyway, so this is the story of three investment bankers, not bakers, three investment bankers. And I'm going to read it to you. Um, it's out of uh, Matthew 25. We're going to start at verse 14. For it is like, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called to his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one one, and each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made, made two talents more. But he who had received just one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He dug a hole and put it in there. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I made two more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful syrup. Servant, not syrup. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering what you, where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and you have gathered where I have no seed, scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at, my own, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, has will be, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that was an exciting story at the very end there, wasn't it? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, nobody raise your hands at this. How many of you have an investment banker? I didn't say raise hands, so you're all keeping your hands down. Good job. Good job for you guys. I'm finding my place. I lost my place in my book here, my uh, sermon notes. So this is another story about what the kingdom of God is like. He says, and again, it will be like. In this story, there are three men entrusted with another man's wealth, right? They're investment bankers. That's what they are. They're people that you give your money to, and their job is to take it and make it grow. 
and they're expected to manage it wisely. The ESV, which I just read, says the men were given talents. The NIV, uh, the New International Version of the Bible, actually takes the liberty of translating the Greek talenton as bag of gold. Okay? Usually, but though, it's tra- talent, translated as talent. And what that actually kind of works out to... So we got one guy given five bags of gold, one guy given two bags of gold, one man given one bag of gold. The, referred, the word here, it actually relates to a, a measurement. It could be between 58 and 80 pounds of weight, or in coinage, it would be equal, just one bag would be equal to 20 years worth of wages for a working man. 20 years of wages was given to the man who had gotten one talent. That gives you an idea of just how generous a gift this was. One man was given 100 years of wages to invest. Five bags of gold at 20 years each. And another was given 40 years of wages. And the last guy was given 20 years of wages. The owner gave them these gifts according to their ability. But I have this a tendency to feel sorry for the one talent guy, right? The guy that just got one bag of gold. You look at that and you go, man, that kind of stinks. He only got one. The other guy got five. That doesn't seem fair. And yet... That one bag was 20 years of wages. Heidi and I, we like to have this, this thing we do every now and again. Every time the, the lottery comes up and they say, the mega billions of jackpot and you know, whatever they say online and on the radio, we, we, what would it be like if we won that? What would it be like you know, when God says, you've got to play in order to win? But we don't ever play and because so, we don't want to waste our money. We're never going to win. But what would it be like if you won that kind of money? I mean, how would it transform your life to win the mega millions? To win the billion dollars that it's, the, the big jackpot happens to hit. It would change stuff, wouldn't it? It would change how you live. You pay off your house debt. You pay off your car debt. You'd probably go on a nice vacation. Most of you would invest it for your children's future. I know you're all responsible young adults, right? You'd be thinking things like that. You would invest that money. It's an incredible amount of wealth. 20 years of wages at Washington State's minimum wage of nine forty-seven. That's what it is this year. If you were to multiply that out, and I did it with an actual calculator, not in my head, so you could trust this number, would be about $380,000. $380,000. How many of you would like $380,000 to invest? Just hand it to you. $380,000. This was a generous gift. The guy who got the least had still had a lot to work with, didn't he? He had a lot to work with. Who's the master in this story that's giving away this wealth? Let's do that again. Who is the master in this story who is giving away the wealth? God. It's God. And he's being extravagantly generous. God is trusting you with his wealth to manage. Obviously, this includes money. That's the, that's the currency that Jesus used to tell this story. It includes your money. God is investing in you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I gotta swallow. I need some water. Could, Emma, could you grab me a cup of water? Thank you. 20 years at minimum wage would be $380,000. Now, that's just insane. If you worked 40 years, it would be $760,000. Three quarters of a million dollars at minimum wage is what somebody in this life working at minimum wage for 40 years would make. Most of you will work for well above minimum wage. Most of you will work for 40 to 60 years. You will manage in your lifetime more than a million dollars, every single one of you. That's a lot of wealth. That's a lot of money. My question is this, is what are you doing with God's money? 
He's being generous with you. What are you doing with God's money? But it's not just our money that's the question. It's, we have a lot more than money that God gives us that we are to invest. We talk about money because it gives us value. Ooh, look, a water bottle with a spritzer. <clears throat> we're given time. We're given talents. We're given energy. We're given family. We're given relationships. We're given friendships. <clears throat> These are things that God has blessed with us, that he has gifted to us generously. And the question is, what are you doing with it for God? <clears throat> Back to our big idea. God is generous. In this story, Jesus clearly teaches us that God has been generous with each of us. Use what God has given you to dare big things for God. I hate to admit this, but <clears throat> excuse me, God and I recently had a conversation about um, the stuff in my life, <clears throat> whether it be my physical stuff or my mental stuff or how I view my job or my career or my success, all of these things. He looked at me and, and one day as I was praying, and he's like, Jamie, you struggle with envy. And I'm like, no, I don't. Envy? Envy? Nobody struggles with envy anymore. That's like, that's reserved for the Middle Ages, right? That's like one of the seven deadly sins, and they, they dealt with that back then. It's like slothfulness and, and envy. Those were things that nobody deals with that anymore. We're a busy culture, and we like what we have. But he's like, no, no, you're always comparing what you have and what you've done to other people. And that makes you stingy with what you have, unwilling to risk unwilling to try big things, unwilling to, to take a chance because you're busy protecting what you have because you're comparing it to what other people have. Envy, it's not just a sin for the people in the dark ages anymore. The problem with that um, is that basically I become the guy with the one talent. I bury the treasure that God has placed in my hands. I bury it. And I know many of you are in that same place. I know many of us, we get envy of, well, I don't have as much as they do, or God hasn't blessed me as much as that other person. But we miss just how much God has blessed us. We miss just how much we have, because we're, we're literally bewildered, belittling it, making it smaller in our own minds. That was a little confession. And I hope that maybe you'll pray for me as I wrestle with this with God, as we, we talk about this together over and over again, it keeps coming up in a thousand different ways. God keeps saying, hey, there it is again. And I confess it, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to deal with it. And so I'm confessing it to you this morning, and I hope that you'll pray for me as I confess it, but I also hope that you'll learn something from me. I hope that you'll learn to actually look at what you've been given and see God's generosity in it, to see just how much He has given in you. And rather than feeling down about what you have, I don't have as much as that guy. I'm just a one-talent person. I have just one talent worth of time, just one talent worth of a good family situation, just one talent worth of money. That rather than doing that, maybe think about how much God has, been, has actually given you and say, thank you, God, for what you have given me. And now I want to make the most of it. I want to use it to the very best of my abilities. I want to invest it for your kingdom. Someday we're going to actually have to talk to God about his wealth that he invested in us. That's part of that story. They're going to stand before that master. He's going to be like, what did you do with it? Guy with five talents, like, here, here's ten. Guy with two talents, here, here's four. Or are you going to be the guy with one talent who buried it? We're going to have to stand before God and deal with it. You know, in a way, this is really what this mentorship program that we're doing here is all about. 
I looked at the resources our church has, the, the things that God has gifted us. He has gifted us with some amazing older men in this church who have been around the block with Jesus three or four times. They've been through stuff. They know God in a way that is unique. And then we also have these amazing young men. I'm looking around at all the amazing young men in the room who have, like, they desperately want to know God deeper and they want to have somebody speak into their lives. So what happens if we take these two great resources that God has given us and bring them together and challenge them and dare them to try something big for the kingdom of God? That's what this mentorship program is really all about. God is generous, so dare big things. That's the God I wish you knew. Lastly, it's the story of the midnight emergency. And now you actually have to turn your Bible over to Luke chapter 11. This is a short one. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he teaches them that, you know, in the, in the Catholic Church, they call it the Our Father. But it's the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. At the end of this, though, he says this to his disciples. This is Luke chapter 11, verse 5. And he said to them, which of you has a friend, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within. Do not bother me. The door is shut now, and my children are in bed with me. Okay, that's just bad parenting. Just saying. Keep the kids out of your own bed. You stay in bed. I can't give up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, that's a good word, huh? He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, this is a, an interesting little story, and it's kind of culturally bound. So you have to understand that in this culture, hospitality was an absolute sacred duty. It was a sacred duty. If somebody came to your house, you were bound to feed them, to put food on the table. It didn't matter what time of night. I mean, it could be 3 o'clock in the morning. Somebody comes knocking on the door. They come into your house. You feed them. That is what you did in this culture. Now we got a serious emergency because now somebody has shown up at 3 o'clock in the morning. The guy went to the refrigerator, and the refrigerator was completely empty. He's like, what? There was food in here an hour ago, and his 15-year-old son is sitting at the counter snacking on everything that was left, right? It's empty. The refrigerator is empty. So we have an actual real emergency going on here. Suppose that happens and you would run to your next door neighbor in your fuzzy pink bathrobe and slippers with the bunny ears, and you bang on the door and you ask for help. Well, she, but in our culture, what we do is like, get lost, right? Don't knock on my door and ask me for snacks at 3 o'clock in the morning. Get lost. Go away. But in this culture, it was an absolute emergency. Let's think of it this way. Suppose you and I were neighbors and friends, okay? We lived right next door to each other. And let's also suppose that Heidi was pregnant. Yes, let that sink in for a second. Heidi and I were at the grocery store the other day, and there was this woman with a baby that was just screaming bloody murder, and she's, like, carrying her through the store. And you hear, ah, ah, you know, all the way through the store. And all I could think to do is I looked at Heidi and I, and I went, we don't have a baby, we don't have a baby. Sorry, lady. But let's just say for the sake of the story that Heidi is pregnant, and not just nine months pregnant, she's, like, 11 months pregnant because all of our pregnancies went that long. I swear, it was like, we were, like, Come on, is this thing, gonna, you know, we're like waiting and she's like mad at the baby and it's like the first week, you, you stayed in there too long. 
So, but she's pregnant, and she's about to have a baby at any moment. Now, let's imagine that in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, Heidi reaches over and shakes me to wake me up and pours a cup of water in my face so that I will actually wake up and pay attention to her. And she says, it's time. The water's broken. And I go run out into the garage. I open the garage door, and I put my key in the car. The bags are all in there, ready to go. And I go to start the car, and it doesn't start. Then I get out, and I run over to the van, and I put my key in the van, and it doesn't start. Now, why that happens, I don't know. But you get it. This is a serious emergency. Car will not start. So what do I do? I run in my pink slippers, in my fuzzy bunny slippers and bathrobe. I run over to your house. I pound on the door till you wake up, and I say, can I borrow your car? Heidi's going to have a baby. It was due two months ago. We've got to get to the hospital. And, and you, what are you going to do? You're going to be like, sure, I'll drive you, right? Or at the very least, here, here's the keys. Just take my car. I'll get it tomorrow, right? That's what any of us would do. That's how we would operate. That's the point of this story. The point of this story is that you would do it because I asked you as a friend. And even if I wasn't your friend, I was just an acquaintance. Because of the emergency and because I had the shameless audacity to come to your door at 3 o'clock in the morning in a pink bathrobe and fuzzy slippers, you would loan me your car. That's what you would do. Of course, here's my keys. And Jesus says this about this circumstance. So ask and it will be given to you. Ask and God will answer. That's the moral of the point of this story is that you just ask God. God wants to answer the door. God wants to come to you in the middle of your emergency, in the middle of your crisis, but also in the middle of your non-crisis. In the middle of the normalcy of your day to ask God because if we go and we ask, we ask audaciously. We have, have the guts to just come before our Heavenly Father and ask. He wants to answer. But then he goes on and says this. We read this last week from the book of Matthew. We're going to read it again from the book of Luke. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Dad, can I have some trout? Sure, here's a rattlesnake. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Dad, I really want an egg salad sandwich. Sure, here's a poisonous little critter that's going to pinch you and then sting you in the face. If you then, who are evil, I love how he always does that, if you're evil, if you're broken, if you're selfish, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for ask Him? Notice that, how much more. That's, that's the God we have. That's the generosity of God. It's a how much more generosity. How much more than the very most generous and the very best of us? How much more generous is God? I mean, you guys like to give your kids good gifts. You like to give your, if you're just a college student, you like to give your parents good gifts. You like to give your friends good gifts. You like to be generous. We like to be kind. We like the way it feels when people are, thank you. But how much more generous is God than we who are generous in this life? That's why I say that you can't outgive God because he is how much more generous. No matter how generous you are, how much more generous is God? It's how much more generosity. So ask. Ask boldly. Ask shamelessly. Ask audaciously. Ask for that parking spot. Sometimes that's a big request if you're on campus, I suppose. Ask for provision. Ask for healing. Ask for hope. Ask for change in our world. Ask big because God is generous. How generous? How much more generous than we are? God is generous, so pray big prayers. 
That's the God I wish you knew. Worship team, would you guys come up? So far we've said that God is good, that God is Father, and that God is generous. I hope that we can banish from here on out this idea that God is stingy and small, that he's tight-fisted, and instead, I hope that you'll know the God who is how much more generous with you and with me. The generosity, really, of God is ultimately found in Jesus. The, the scripture that we all know, we see it at the football games, we see it everywhere, it's become so trite to us, it's John three sixteen. But it fully expresses the generosity of God. That God so loved this world, He so loved this world, that He gave His one and only Son. It's the ultimate measure of God's generosity. He gave His Son for us, His one and only Son. I can't imagine that. I have a one and only Son. I can't imagine sacrificing Him for any one of you. If a bus was coming, I would gladly give myself for Him. And many of you would too. It's the nature of us. But to take and turn and actually sacrifice my son for you, that's beyond me. It's a generosity beyond my capability to even comprehend. We love our children so fiercely, and we're fiercely protective of them. So we can understand dying to save a child, but giving your son to save others, it's an act of sacrificial love that we can't even begin to process. And that is the kind of generosity that God displays through His Son. And please don't think that God gave His Son and His Son wasn't interested. Romans 8, 8.32 says this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? I read the wrong scripture. <laughs> Ephesians 5.2 Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus did this willingly. He gave himself up willingly. And we're to mimic that. We're to, to act like that on behalf of others, to give ourselves up for them. Jesus gave himself up for me and for you. That is overwhelming, crazy generosity. It's a how much more generosity and so much more than we can imagine is wrapped up in that gift. And that's what that second verse was about. If he didn't spare his only son, how much more will he give us? How much more has he given us graciously all things in Jesus? Jesus is the gift, and there is so much more wrapped up in the gift of Jesus for each one of us. It's not finan just financial. It's mercy, it's grace, it's kindness, it's peace in the midst of storms. It's hope in the middle of hopelessness. This is all wrapped up in Jesus. God gave us the biggest and best possible gift, his son. Everything else is wrapped up in that.